Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuck, Adelics? It's Mark Marin. This is WTF. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. Today on the show, uh, the the amazing Sturgill Simpson is here. Country music singer-songwriter Sturgill Simpson. And I got a few minutes uh, that I'm going to share with you from a talk I had with John C. Riley who uh, dropped by. Not the full thing, but I want to give you a little taste because he's got a thing opening and I'm a good sport. You know what I'm saying? Quid pro quo, you dig? That's right. Here's some upcoming dates I'm doing before uh, I go on tour um, officially. The Spokane Comedy Club in Spokane, Washington, July 7th through 9th. I'll be at Wise Guys again, a favorite club of mine in Salt Lake City, Utah, July 14th through 16th. And I'll be at the Comedy Club in Rochester, New York, September 9th and 10th. You can go to WTFPod.com slash tour for links to get tickets. Tickets will go on sale soon for my dates in Bloomington, Indiana and Phoenix, Arizona. Also, before I forget, some personal business here. We want to say thank Thanks to Mike Moon. Mike Moon from Just Coffee. He's the guy who reached out to us way back in the day and started working with us when we were broadcasting out of an office kitchen with Sam Cedar on a show called Break Room Live. He's leaving uh, Just Coffee for another company. So we just wanted to say thanks to Mike for the support and for all the beans over the years and good luck on your new venture there, Mike. Mikey boy, Mike Moon. Roasting the coffee up there in uh, Wisconsin. I'm actually, honestly, uh, drinking a cup of JustCoffee.coop. And this is for you, Mike. This is for you, Mike Moon from Just Coffee, now moving on to other things. This is the thing that we weren't so sure about. I was pretty sure about it, but you weren't so sure about it at the beginning, Mikey. But here, I'm, I'm doing this for you. This is a classic, classic Pow! Look out! I just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop. Uh, available at WTFpod.com. Yeah, that's for you. I was I I don't know uh, how how long you've been listening or or where you've come in on this thing, but uh the story on that on just coffee specifically was that uh when Sam Cedar and myself hosted a streaming video show that very few people watched called Break Room Live out of the actual break room at uh, what was left of Air America. Uh, we could not get sponsors. Nobody. Nobody. There was there was like maybe at, at a peak, 
you know, a thousand people, 1500 people watching the damn show. We'd go live from the break room. And uh, and Mike Moon said, just coffee, be willing to, to sponsor it. So if you go dig up videos of break room live with me and Sam, that what the agreement for the 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 actual deal for the sponsorship was that they would send us boxes of coffee. They'd send us a shit ton of coffee and we put all kinds of just coffee stickers and uh, and branding all over the break room, like up on a bulletin board uh, behind us. They were the first guys, man, the first company to believe in us and me. And we've carried them all this time uh, joyfully. And I made the ad up that I just shit my pants, pow, I just shit my pants, which was not the imaging they wanted. But sometimes you got to trust the guy. You got to trust the guy in the mic. Yeah, pow, I just shit my pants is not not something that makes you want to do necessarily you know, buy coffee, but kind of does, right? Kind of does. A lot of people uh, drink that first cup to get that thing going. Uh, I was told that I believe that Just Coffee, uh, that the WTF Pod Blend is still the best-selling uh, coffee on their uh, online sales. And uh, we were happy to work with them. It was, it was really one of the first times, to be honest with you, uh, that me me and uh, myself and Brendan, my, my business partner and producer, where... We actually saw that the show could have an impact on a business. I mean, we were they were with us at the beginning, and we just started doing that thing. It was the first time that we actually saw, you know, the power of believing in a product that, like, I enjoyed, that I liked uh, doing ads for, and that uh, I liked getting for free. Who doesn't like that? And it 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 was a big boost for their business, like tremendous. And it was a uh, it was one of those strange moments where you're like, we we're I guess we're we're kind of entrepreneurs now. We're doing a thing. Got a little business going here. Yeah, so that was kind of fun. Let's do this now because um, John C. Riley stopped by the garage a few days ago. You're going to hear the full conversation with him next month. But we usually like to line things up with projects that people are working on, and we weren't able to do that with John's new movie, The Lobster, which opens in theaters tomorrow, May 13th. So here's a here's a clip of me and John C. Riley talking about The Lobster, and consider this a little teaser for the full conversation that is uh, uh, forthcoming and, and, and pretty great. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Actually. Tell me about the movie you've come here to uh, promote, because like, I, I, I'll be honest with you, and I'm not always honest in this particular area. I, I tried to watch it, but the <laughs> link wouldn't work. 
I couldn't. I oh, couldn't. <laughs> that's better than I fell asleep and no, I never no, no. Got like back I, to it. Sometimes when they send screeners online with a password, I hate it. I write it's away, a fucking right nightmare. Away. I'll write like can't d- link does not work. Yeah, yeah. Just link send me work. something. Send me. Yeah. Send me a fucking thing that because like oh, more so. Somebody than that. sent me someone. Try, there was someone was trying to convince me to go on a TV show the other day. Yeah, and they sent me a link to say like, yeah, the TV show's like this. You know, yeah. go on, it'll be fun. And here's a link to, to right. give you an idea of what it's like. So I hit the link. Immediately says you have to have an app for this. I, I know, like, right? Fuck you, right? I don't, I don't have enough apps. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want an app. Yeah, and, and then, so I just wrote back. It doesn't work, right? And so, they, then what they do? They get you a screener. I of didn't some kind? do the show. I just <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> but is it? It's a sci-fi movie, right? It's a movie called The Lobster. Yeah, and it's directed and written by this great Greek director named Yorgos Lanthimos, who did a really great movie called Dogtooth. Uh huh. If, if you get a chance, see Dogtooth. I wonder if I. It's saw one it. of the best movies. Of my lifetime, I think. Really? Yes. Okay. And so this is his first English language movie. Yeah. It's called The Lobster. It stars Colin Farrell, uh-huh. um, Rachel Weiss, myself, Leia uh, Sedu, all, all kinds of. I like her, great Rachel actors. Weiss. I like seeing her. Well, you should go. You should. Did you get that link working, buddy? Because she's I'm going to try. Did you see that movie, Youth? Is that what it was called? That that one last year, Youth. I didn't see it. It's, it's an Italian movie, right? It's pretty good, man. And I'm like, you know, I'm not the big foreign movie guy, like, but it's like it's not a foreign movie, obviously, but it's definitely an uh, an art movie w- with a lot of poetry to it. But it works, and it's like really compelling. And Michael Caine is great. I'll have to see that. But uh, okay, so um, what, what, what the happened? The lobster. Yeah, it takes place in a not so distant future, mm-hmm. where it is illegal to be single, mm-hmm. and the government. There's this sort of author- authoritarian, oppressive government, and if you lose your partner or your wife, they die or they leave you yeah. or you cheat on them, and yeah. you, whatever. Then you're sent to this prison that looks like a very fancy hotel it's like a four-star hotel yeah and you're sent to this hotel to find a new companion and you have 45 days in which to do it wow and if you don't find someone in 45 days yeah you are turned into an animal of your choice in this transformation room. Now, that's the only science fiction part of the movie. That's a pretty big this, one. I know. But just <laughs> jump over it. It's like the frogs in Magnolia. Just yeah. jump over it. It yeah. happened. It, it, whatever. Yeah. So the, so so everyone who at this prison is desperate to find So We all have to wear these same uniforms and like blue blazers, and there's all these bizarre rituals where you're trying to meet these other single people and... Um, and so you have these 45 days. And then if you, so the way you can buy more time to find a partner at this prison is you go out on these hunts with guns, tranquilizer guns. Yeah. And in the forest are people that have run away from society called loners who, who don't want to be in couples. But, the, but they're allowed to live out in the woods or what? No, they're not allowed. They're, the government's hunting for them, but... But they're out there on their own. Right, and right. They have their own, whole own strict set of rules about only being single. Right, no, you right. Know, no one can be romantic. No dancing, no looking right. at each other, no yeah, kissing. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And so the, the people from the prison go out every per- periodically on these surprise hunts. And then if for every loner that you tranquilize and bring back to the prison, you are given another day 
to find a partner at the prison. So you could- So there's an incentive program. Yeah, yeah. so as long as you keep capturing loners, you can indefinitely keep looking for a partner at this prison. But if if you run out of time in 45 days, you get turned into, so Colin Farrell's character You get turned into what if you run out of time? He wants to be a lobster. If he he runs out of time, he says in the movie, I'm gonna be a lobster. What a weird choice, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So anyway, so there's, but it's a really, really amazing movie, and a lot of younger people, especially people in their twenties and thirties, when it showed at Cannes, it was a big hit among those people because people struggling with relationships sure. and what should I get married? What is married? What is love? Do you know? I think we're in this moment in time where like gender roles are getting more fluid, and yeah. at the same time as people are doubling down on traditional roles, right. Like, ISIS and whoever the fuck are doubling down yeah. on women's roles and men's roles and exerting this control to keep yeah. things like like they were 2,000 years ago yeah. or something. There's this other thing that's happening. I think even all that orthodox kind of stuff and and um, extremist stuff mm-hmm. is happening in, re- in reaction to what's actually going on in the world, which is this slowly evolving gender fluidity thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and you found those kids enjoyed the movie. Yeah, so people who are who are dealing with all that stuff yeah. right now love this movie because it's all about you, you know what is this pressure to be with somebody like why can't I you know why can't I just you know be yeah. alone and figure it out and, yeah and then also people who have been in relationships for a long time also really like it because like I don't know if you're married or with someone but you get to be around the age that we are and. You start wondering, like, wait, did I just randomly choose this person, or <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Could I? Just, what am I doing? Could I've, could I've just as easily picked someone else? Oh yeah. And then I'd be married to them for twenty five years, be, yeah. just out of habit or whatever. Right. Or I'd find a way to love that person that I randomly picked. Right. Or is there really a thing called love, and that's what I have with my partner, and that's right. So you. So for people that are struggling with like, what is love? We say, I love you, I love you, I love you. We say it so much, but what does it really mean? That's an interesting question. So I just had that conversation today with a psychiatrist or a psychologist. As you get older, I think it starts to get more relative. You just start to go like, what? What have I been saying? What do I even mean? What does it mean? Yeah. Yeah. What what is it? Is love commitment? Is love acceptance of another person's differences from Mm -hmm. you? Or what is it? So the movie really traffics and all that stuff and it's very funny yeah it's got this really dark dark comedy and i'm going to give this guy some praise that that i that's going to sound like over the top but but i'll explain why this director yorgos lanthimos i think is the closest thing i've seen to stanley kubrick Uh uh-huh because he has a strict formality about the way that he shoots yeah he has a sick, sick, cruel sense of humor. Yeah. And at the same time, he has this kind of optimistic acceptance of the way human beings are with all their fucked up qualities. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. So, that, so, so, this, so this guy, you know, he's not working on the scale that Kubrick worked on. Right. But if he got a little more money or he got a little more support, I bet he would start moving in that direction so this is a great experience for you he's got a real interesting very unique style and the the acting in his movies is also very unique 
But I really you? recommend you see. Yeah, I I was forced to work in a way that's different than I've worked before. What is that? Um, well, you see, there's like people give less. The actors give less uh-huh. in his movies, uh-huh. which makes you kind of fill in the blanks more as a viewer. Uh-huh. There's more, kind of a deadpan affect. And that was the direction? Well, knowing his previous work, you know the way he works. Right. So all of us were trying to channel that kind of way, mm-hmm. you know? But anyway, it's it's a really, really interesting movie, and and I think people are going to love it. There you go. <laughs> That's some junket talk right That's there. That's my job. Yeah, no, you did good with that. That's my job. Me and John C. Riley, full conversation. Well, you know, we had a good talk. And he's not he's not a guy that loves to talk about himself, but we found a way to do it, and it's pretty amazing. Very surprising conversation about some of the things that you know John likes and some of his acting stuff and and music. I it was really good, and I'll be running that next month. Today, though, soon, moments away, Sturgill Simpson. Country music. I'd like to say I grew up with it, and I did, but just um, adjacent to it. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and you know they had the state fair, and every year the state fair they'd have you know different country acts, Roy Clark and Buck Owens, maybe maybe a George Jones here and there, maybe a Willie, a Waylon. I remember when the Outlaws came through. I remember that record around. I remember pickup trucks. I remember cowboy hats. I went to a camp where we had to have a cowboy hat and cowboy boots in order to go to that camp because we were going to be assigned a horse. And uh, yeah, that's part of my life. We were assigned a horse. We had to bring a fly fishing rod where we'd fly fish in the stocked pond. We made our own flies. I've done that. I had a cowboy hat, Stetson, the straw kind. We learned how to bend it up so it was cool where it bends in the back and bends in the front at a point because there was a guy there, a counselor named Gil, who was a little weird, a little weird. Gil was a little weird. But he was a real cowboy, so he taught us how to fold our hats, and we wore our cowboy boots, and we had to have our pants, and my horse was named Mom. Mom was the name of my horse, and Mom would not let me saddle her, Turn, you know, kind of whipped around, bit me in the side. I cried like a fucking baby in my boots and hat, and, uh, and have, since that day, I've been paralyzed with a fear of horses. But that aside, I do enjoy country music. And I grew to appreciate it longer, you know, more as I got older. So I'm very happy to have Sturgill on the show today. But I would like to discuss, if I could, um, the mystery blood on my porch. I do. I want to discuss the mystery blood. Blood on the porch. Maybe that's my country song. Blood on the tracks. It's a Dylan record. Blood on the porch. That's my okay. So maybe maybe as I unfold this story to you, that we'll find a country song in it. Okay. So I went out on my porch the other morning and there were drops of blood on the porch. Uh, and I followed them down the driveway and they stopped. And then uh, a little while later I noticed that up on the wall on my porch is a brick wall. There was uh, two little puddles of blood with some blood drips. Not a little blood, not so much blood where I, I thought I was going to find a dead animal or a dead person in my driveway, but there was blood. And I automatically assumed it was my guy, my wild guy, scaredy cat, who I've been feeding for a decade, who I've seen through some shit, who has been bloodied before and has disappeared for months at a time. I thought this was it. This was the end of scaredy cat. This was the end of the, of the monster, the beast that is uh, that cat 
that cat who I have a love-hate relationship, though I enjoy seeing, was actually the cat that pushed Boomer out, that pushed Boomer out beyond the parameter into the the jaws of a coyote or into hopefully a nice um, Mexican home down the street. Don't know, we don't know. That mystery remains unsolved. But I know this fucker, who I assumed was dead, is one of the reasons that Boomer split. So I got an issue with him, but I like seeing him. You know, I can't get involved with cat politics. I don't know how their shit rolls. So so I don't know what the fuck is happening. I don't know whose blood it is. And then I realized, hey, how about that security camera you installed for uh, stalkers? Maybe that would help you with uh, wounded animals. So I'm going through the security footage and um, got to be honest with you, no one looks good on security footage. Everybody looks like a fucking criminal. But I saw no animals except for Scaredy a couple of times and a, and a night shot of two massive fucking raccoons who did look suspect. Okay? Here's the point. Here's what happens. So I grieve as I do when one of these dumb shits disappears. And uh, two days later, he shows up. Nothing wrong with him. Nothing, not a goddamn thing wrong with that cat. Not that I was disappointed, but I'm like, I said to him, I said, what'd you do, man? What'd you do? You know, was it like Kevin Bacon said to Sean Penn at the end of Mystic River? What'd you do? Who'd you, who'd you kill? What did you do? He just looked at me with his dumb face and I fed him some food. So it's a mystery, man. I don't know why my camera did not pick up a bleeding animal that looked like spent some time on my fucking porch or maybe it was just a wandering person who had a bloody face and then rested his bloody face on the wall of my porch for a moment and then wandered off we'll never know because the camera fucking failed me is there a country song in that is there something there man so sturgill simpson as i said there's something beautiful about his records his songwriting and the production he produced this record himself his first two records, I believe, were produced by Dave Cobb, who's got a great sense of classic country production, of what country music sound, supposed to sound like and used to sound like, but with a little tweak. And I think uh, Sturgill learned a lot from uh, working with uh, with Dave. I also would like to say that, uh, that Sturgill and I talked a bit about the late Merle Haggard. Uh, he was not dead when we talked about him, and we, we miss Merle. I do miss Merle. I love Merle. I love George. I love uh, Waylon. I like Willie. I like I like Buck and Roy. I like Tammy. You know what I'm saying, man. His new album, Sturgill's A Sailor's Guide to Earth, is available now, and it's a beautiful record. It's a very personal record, and uh, we talk about that record. Uh, so enjoy me and Sturgill Simpson. <laughs> picked up that j45 in my living room and that was uh you're you're a goddamn string wizard uh no man there's i've lived in nashville yeah okay long enough to know that i am not a guitar player really yeah trust me bro but yeah. was there a moment there where you're like uh, god damn it i thought i was pretty good yeah oh for sure you know what i mean it's, <laughs> it's like well fuck i'll never be able to do what that guy just did so i guess i better focus on this whole writing thing you know <laughs> so. but you got it in the you got it in the like is it to the point where like if you're doing a record and they go like, "Come on, Sturgeon, why don't you let's just kick a lead on this one?" You're like, "No, man, just yeah." Because I, <laughs> and I guess that's sad because for you know when I was a teenager, that's yeah. all I cared about was playing guitar, right? And uh, 
But then I just really, you know, I found, I guess what I'd say is my my real voice. Right. Where I can say more with this than just this giant expression of anger and ego. Right. That sounds great coming right. through a 50-watt plexi, but, you know. Yeah. Um, and there's guys in town that just floored me so... I was so impressed by it. I was like, I got to find a way to play music with these guys, you know, just to. So what were you playing like in high school and stuff? I mean, what was oh, it? Oh man, across the gamut. Were you like long hair? You know, what was it? Yeah, what? I was a stringy, greasy pothead. Yeah. Uh, what know, car I, were you driving? I Well, unfortunately I had a 1988 Toyota Corolla because <laughs> I had to work at McDonald's. Um, but uh, Oh man. Yeah. But, but no, I mean, I had like, I had an older cousin who showed me all the wrong records way too young. Like what? What were they? Like, were they? You know, all the Zeppelin box set and Jimi oh, Hendrix, yeah. and uh, I had the next door neighbor, like the choking bad kid with the Chevy Nova, who was in high school. And Nova. When, when Appetite for Destruction came out, and, uh. he, and I'll never forget this. I was standing in front of my house, like shooting basketball, and Danny, and he was like, you know, just so badass, right? You know, he's like, have you ever seen that show on Netflix? The F is for Family. He's the blonde neighbor guy, with right, the, right, with right. Car. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. But he pulls up one day and uh, just blasting this primal sound and i was like what is that and he, was, and he just looked at me and i'll never forget it because it crushed me he goes he's like where the fuck you been kid in the cave that's guns and roses man <laughs> i just had to go out my mom like, ended up throwing away three copies because she kept finding it and seeing the, the inner artwork <laughs> right so oh, they like, stash it i've interviewed that guy robert williams the guy the, who did uh, that artwork painting? yeah, the yeah, yeah. oh my god um she kept throwing it away it's probably worth some money now man sure I I, I don't know because I know I think they there was flack about it and I, and I yeah. think they pulled pulled some of them she back. She threw away my Steppenwolf. She heard the pusher Steppenwolf? one time. Like all she the, threw away the pusher. She threw away the pusher, man. Threw, oh. it, threw actually threw it out the window of the car. Now that I remember it, because I played it and the pusher came on. You and know. How, she's like, no, no, no not my boy. <laughs> not my boy. He doesn't need to hear this. Oh, poorly. Well, how'd you grow? Where where did you grow up? Uh, in Kentucky. Which part? Uh, originally, I'm from a little town in southeast Kentucky called yeah. Jackson. Yeah. Which is like Appalachia, coal mining area. Um, For real? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like the first male on my mom's side of the family that wasn't a coal miner. Really? Yeah. So, and then- uh, I'm we, sorry, I don't say- I, 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 why, I, You know, it's like, I, you know, I hear about this stuff, but I think you might be the, the first person I've talked to that, you know, it's something about life in that part of the country that you hear about. But you, you, I would never have experienced it, and, and I always thought it would be a hard life and it'd be insane. So I, if I sound surprised and shocked, it's no, like, no, it's so fine. It's, it's, it's only because I'm like, um, what? That sounds fucking brutal. Oh well, yeah. I mean, my, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, I saw my my great grandfather when he yeah. was alive. He he definitely worked in deep mines his whole life, and uh, so you know, I saw like the toll that that took on his body. My my grandmom's dad and her brother they worked on strip mines, and like Papa was actually a foreman. So you're not in the hole. They, just they weren't, shit they weren't up. down in the hole. They're just blowing shit up. Right. And then, um, on the weekends, he he had this big giant Ford Bronco. Yeah. There was a work truck through the coal company, and then he'd take us up, me and my younger cousin up there on the strip mine on the weekends in this big monster truck. Yeah. And, and it was like to me, you know, as a kid, it's beautiful because you could see everything, but now. The devastation that that industry sort of left on the area, yeah, and everything that came along with that—it's it, not the same place that that I. Oh really? Grew up it's in. that tangible? Like yeah. You know, well, you know, once they once the they, a lot of the environmental issues obviously that needed to be addressed, put some pressure on the industry. It's kind of it's it's pulled back a lot, uh -huh. and, and so the, the the big coal left. Walmart and OxyContin came in, and that pretty much. Yeah, you know that just destroyed everybody. That's, that's where. Yeah, that used to be a really Jackson was a really great. It still is a uh -huh. really great small town, but the community, in the sense that I remember being a child there, you know, Main Street and all the, the mom and pop right. businesses and everybody knew each other. It just doesn't feel 
so much the same anymore. It's like a shell. You hate to say that, but I mean, it's happening in a lot of places. Yeah. It's not just uh, it's not just Jackson. So then we moved uh, to a town called incorrectly pronounced Versailles. Yeah, if you're, a, yeah. you know, uh, did local. they pronounce it like that? They sure Vers- do. Oh, really? They've committed to that. They've committed. No Versailles. No Versailles doesn't add up. No, we're not. The letters we're not don't. Playing, we're not playing that. Uh, so we moved up there, like towards you know, some grade school. Uh huh. My dad got transferred, and I, what was he doing? He was a state trooper. Oh, really? Yeah. So you drew, you grew up with the with a cop in the house. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> How many siblings you got? None. Just you. Just me. and the cop and the mom who throws away Steppenwolf records. Yeah. Wow. It must have been hard to rebel. I found a way. <laughs> uh, but I mean, was there when you were a young kid? I mean, there must have been some excitement about riding in the car and. You oh know, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I had a weird childhood. Like, all my babysitters were state troopers, and. Oh really? <laughs> he uh, he had a really interesting career. Actually, kind of ran the gamut. Um, I think he's the only state trooper in history, of Kentucky, that went in as a highway patrolman and retired as commissioner. Oh really? He went all the way up the yeah, chain. He worked homicide for a while. Worked narcotics for a while. He was bodyguard for two or three Kentucky governors. Oh really? Um, so he was like sort of a lifer, but he had a you know he had a a, a goal in mind, huh? Yeah, yeah. He's very good at his job. Is he still around? Yeah, yeah. And he's he probably still... my biggest supporter, man. It's, Is he? Yeah, totally. He he could never hardly turn on a radio. So the fact that you know when I was a kid and showed interest in music, my grand his father was a big bluegrass guy, a player or a fan, both. Oh yeah, what do you play? Mandolin. That's uh, bluegrass mandolin's the best. It's... It's like, you know, it's one of those things that every time you hear it when it's done well, you're like, how is he doing that? Yeah. Like, I'm not, you know, full on, you know, country. I mean, I grew up with a little bit, but not I either. Was, yeah. But you, but you are now, you kind of have to be. Uh, you because, know, <laughs> well, I'm not so sure. But not in a bad way. No, <laughs> like, let me, let me, let me try to qualify that. Is that like, I think that the three records you've done and this new record is, is definitely different. Would you call it a country record? I would. The new record? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, good. But like the first two, it's sort of like, this is like, I'm not even a, a country music person in terms of whatever country music means now, but like my sources for country, you know, Waylon and Willie and George right. and Merle and, and, you know, some other, even, you know, Buck Owens were, I mean, I grew up with these guys in my head. So just the production and the sound and, and the cleanness of the whole thing and the presentation was really what country music was built on yeah. and, and should be because you listen to country now, which I don't, but I can't tell what it is. So I I think you're doing some of the most uh, uh, authentic country around. Thanks, man. <laughs> and I thought this new record, the thing that was amazing about it is right from the beginning, I'm like, oh, we got strings. Yeah. You know, we got orchestration. Yeah. We got like, you know, this is like this is like a big country presentation. It never once crossed my mind that this was any other form of music. It was almost like those Elvis records in a way. That's kind of where my head was at. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, not in terms of sonics. Right, and, right. Because, um, you know, he was like, he's a huge hero, man. He's, like in the ghetto. Totally. That, right, right. All that. Uh, yeah. Especially the stack stuff. When, right. When James Burton and those guys were playing, they had the horns. and But it was like a hybrid. It was just a hillbilly singing blues and rock and roll. Right. And country and gospel. And, yep. You know, just throwing it all together. And I really, I, I mean, I, I'm a country singer. I'll never deny that. As soon as I open my mouth, it's what's going to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, but musically, man, I've just, my whole life I've been in love with so many different types of music that I finally wanted to honor it, honor it and, right. and, and get it out. Right. You know? Um, well, I thought that the R and B element of it, you know, it throughout the record was really, was, was perfectly done. 
you know, because there is a, you, you know, there is sort of a, a groove to it that is definitely R and B, right? A lot of funk. old R and B, old R and B funk. I mean, Marvin Gaye's probably my favorite musician of all time. Oh yeah, I've probably listened to more Marvin Gaye than anybody. So, but you know, I'm not going to be able to. Like nobody can sing like Marvin Gaye. So well, you mean not, like because like some of it is reminiscent of old Marvin Gaye a little bit. Old Marvin Gaye, especially the '70s, like the darker period. Oh yeah. Um, but he just in terms of his fearlessness as an artist, and and it was so cathartic you uh-huh. know, coming from such a unfiltered place and he right. was just kind of like yeah they might not buy this but this is this is where my head and my heart is so like they're finally guys like bowie you know i got a little more inspiration from guys like that than i ever did a lot of the country songwriters that i love sure because these guys like you know someone like marvin Gaye was a made guy a made r&b star and then he's yeah. like well i gotta go deeper yeah and i gotta do uh what's going yeah, on i gotta, I gotta use this for something bigger than myself you know? yeah 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 and you you were aware of that I think so. Is it about, more of a songwriter, or because like I would think that when you were a guitar player, that you know what it meant to uh, to sort of push the envelope guitar wise was pretty specific. But I, I think when you're talking about vulnerability and, and showing your feelings and stuff, it's a different thing. It is a different thing. Well, I mean, it's, I'm not, you say that, but like you know, Roy Buchanan, the guy with the Telecaster, could oh say God. a lot more than a lot of singers could ever. I say. I can barely listen to him. It's it's you can feel it's heartbreaking. You feel the torture that that guy was. I mean it. I was kind of bored with guitar for a few years. Yeah. And then I discovered him. Yeah. It's, and it's, it yeah. Totally fell in love with it all over again. Even his cover of Hey Joe, like, you know, there's a stiffness to what he did, but like the, because <clears throat> of that, the way he fucking pushed the envelope, you're like, oh my God, he's going to lose it. He's going to lose it. You always felt that Jimi Hendrix could just fly into any territory mentally or emotionally that was out there. But Roy looked like he was like wrestling with that. Man, I, I love Jimi Hendrix. Of course. But I got to say, I think, and, I, and I'll probably catch heat on this, but Roy played that song in a way that captured Manic, what yeah. that song was really about, the meanness and the yeah. this underlying tension. Yeah. You know, you feel you feel the menace, I guess, in his sure, version. Sure, sure. Well. Where are you going, Joe? It's not a good idea. Where are you idea. going, Joe? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Let's rethink this a minute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, those kind of themes... Like I, I'm, I'm not usually a word guy, you know. And, and I've listened to, you know, the first, you know, couple of your first couple of records, not as intensely as maybe I should have word wise, because I was sort of caught I, up. If with you can even understand what I'm saying, I'd. I'd well, that what well, country impressed. affords you that? Yeah, I get. You know, I get that more from uh, like Joe Cocker and Van Morrison. All these guys were a lot of my favorite singers, and yeah. I, I, or Kurt Cobain. You know, I was a huge Nirvana fan, but like you can't understand anything they're saying. Yeah, so I can't, I started wondering, well. Is it about expression and mood, or should I just be going for perfect enunciation and sacrificing energy and soul for the sake of somebody in the audience feeling like, yeah, that guy's actually speaking English, right? You know? And I'm, and a lot of people can't understand what I'm saying. Really, but it's uh, it's just how I sing, man. I'm no, just, but I think you're, I think you, you can hear. Yeah, I, I like, I have to pay attention to words because I'm a mood guy right. in general. You like to feel the pain. Yeah, sure. I yeah. like to feel like even like I like to be moved by the the music. Yeah. You know, if there's a word or two in there that I can latch on to in a chorus, I'm good. You know what I mean? Well, the music I think should should enhance and accentuate and uh, prop up what's there lyrically. Right. I think that's the job. So you, that's what this is something you've come to. Yeah, I've come to this. Right, right. Like it's, it's like it's, I'm a songwriter. Maybe they should. I'm hear a songwriter, I'm... but I, I don't even. More than that, I think I just want to make records. So like a group of songs that serve a greater sum, and then musically, for lack of a better term, uh, the sonics have to sort of in a 
there's no way around it, but it's it's manipulation. You're right. you're lifting up what you're trying to say sure. in a motive way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're I, and you're completely aware of that. Well, yeah, yeah. That's good because, like, you know, to be that, uh, like, I don't know what the relationship between an artist and a producer is all the time, but it seems to me a lot of times that you know, if the artist is. Um, not irresponsible, but either completely trusting or 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 not as in tuned that a producer can have a great deal of input on a, on a record. They can, yeah, they certainly can because they're going to have ideas, and uh, anybody that's worth their salt as a producer sh- certainly should have ideas, or you wouldn't want to be in the room with them. Right, but um, you can go because you're aware of this this relationship. You can be like, how do we get it to to do that? Well, yeah, uh, the first two records I worked with with Dave Cobb, and I learned more from him than I could probably than I, than I'm even aware of at this point. I think, but in terms of he he does a great job of not imposing. I mean, he has ideas and and. 80% of the time they're the, they're right. If he's start, he'll be like, "Well, that's good." Yeah. But what if you did this? And you know, any artist gets tied to something, you're going to initially be like, "Ah, it's like a, well, actually that sounds pretty cool." Right. You know, um and then but I think more than it, Dave knows how to stay out of the way, but looking back on it, I realized he the first record we did was us kind of getting to know each other. Right. And I can be really pretty volatile in the and, studio if I'm t- set on something. So, oh, really? Like he, you know, to navigate that. And then I realized some days he was actually manipulating me to get me angry to get a certain emotion or energy out of it. And it's uh-huh. like, oh, he's okay. a real good he's producer. He's a fucking P.T. Barnum, man. Uh, <laughs> Where did he come from, though? Because the one thing I noticed about those first, first two records and, and, and just putting on the first record was right away, you know, this guy, you, you know, knows exactly where country music comes from. You know, especially, you know, that era in the 60s and 70s where, you know, they had a little more control over the production. There was a balance between the steel and the drums. Everything sounded like, you know, not not nostalgic, but well-referenced. You dig? Well, everything has its place. Right. And, and he not, knows what the place is. He does. And, you know, man, honestly, we listened to the same records as kids. It was weird how much musically we had in common. Well, like um, Zeppelin and stuff? All that. Yeah. yeah Zeppelin, uh, the Meters. Um, well, I think I think you guys were gifted about in, the same age. in the region you were in. But music for me, country music. I've always mom's dad, my grandfather was big Marty Robbins, Merle Haggard guy. Like I didn't know anybody else even made records until I was about seven years old because that's all he listened to. <laughs> and this is early '80s, so uh, country was kind of having a heyday back then, right? You know, like Key Hall, and I mean Merle was playing stadiums. Yeah, so it was it was everywhere, and we'd go to Gatlinburg and you know, all this stuff, and uh, so those images, those impressions were kind of burned in well it's it's, well that's the the benefit of growing up where you grew up like you know that's where country music lives and like alongside of just the regular rock that we all got i mean country was integrated into the fabric of of life Mm -hmm. you know like i didn't really have that i mean it was around it was new mexico but it wasn't texas and it certainly wasn't kentucky so Mm -hmm. i imagine there was two or three generations of people listening to bluegrass and country records and that was everywhere yeah yeah literally and Merle Haggard did that record with George Jones. That's a good record. Those guys had a lot of fun. Man. Oh man, didn't they? I've, that's one, been the most fortunate aspect of everything that's happened for me is getting to meet the hero, the heroes of mine that are still around. Merle, and Merle, and uh, we you know we've played shows with Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson now, and it's, my, my grandparents. Oh, really? Lived long enough to see me play the Opry in person. They did. You know, like that stuff that I'll always cherish and like. It for me the trophies and and accolades and fame and money like that's all fine and dandy and it's it's but to know that I finally got to let them see me do something that wasn't a disappointment was 
you know, and they understood. They, they understood. totally. Oh my god! Like they grew up in coal camps in Eastern Kentucky, <laughs> listening to it on a radio. Right. Way, you know, so it was. It's heavier than. Um, and I'm they, just grateful. That's all. And they came down and they saw you play at yeah, the opera. My mom brought them down in Nashville. Both of them. The, both of them. They're in, in their mid 80s, and they oh came down and stood god. there. Oh my god! You know, from my grandfather, that was it. He's yeah. like, no matter what happens or what you think you're chasing, like you, you've done it. Right. You're that's at the it. Opry. You're at the Opry. <laughs> you know? What did they? What did he say after? Not much. <laughs> yeah. Not a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really cool, man. Because he was a big Merle fan, so you know that's a that's a beautiful moment that you know where where there's you, been a lot of beautiful moments man, yeah in the last couple of years i bet but you're getting the respect from the from the old timers that that you respect the ones that matter yeah and like chris christopherson he's heavy dude we played <laughs> willie's picnic last july in texas mm -hmm. and i'll never ever forget this as long as i live uh in the middle of our set i look over and on the side of the stage behind one of the side monitors, Chris Christopherson's back there literally with his hands in the air, like just cheering fucking, you on, just th booting down. I was like, what is happening? And we come off the stage and we're in the dressing room and he walks in literally like, was like, I mean, it looked like he had, a, I mean, I'm not shitting you, man. The guy had a tear in his eye. He's just like, I, f I feel like I'm, you know, he's like, you made me a really happy guy today. And like that dude to stand there, say, I'm just, I, it was all I could do not to choke up like a little bitch yeah. right there in front of the, probably yeah. the coolest guy in history, right. you know? Uh, yeah. And just things like that. I'm glad that all this is happening at 36, 37, 38 years old, as opposed to 25. Yeah. When I would have just, I would have been lost in the haze of it and not appreciated all of it, you know? Well, let's go back. I mean, what the journey was? What did you grow up with your mom? Was it like a, a heavy Christian thing with no, her? No, no, it was no. just a protective thing thrown protective. away. Uh, they, my parents married really young, had me really young. Did uh, they grow up in coal camps? Yeah, dad was from uh, Eastern Kentucky, further down the road. Mom was from Eastern Kentucky. They're not in coal camps. No, that's no. you talk. That's another generation back. That's your grandparents. Grandparents, but uh, but in coal communities, absolutely. Uh huh. Yeah. So that was just the way life went. That eventually you'd yeah. be a coal miner, and it was a legacy thing, or uh, or a state cop, you right? Know, whatever. But the fact is that, like early on, when did you start uh, finding a uh, guitar? My grandfather had an old Gibson that sat on a stand that was off limits for a long time. An acoustic, an acoustic, and watched, real old. No, it was like a seventy-one, seventy-two J fifty-five. My grandmother bought, uh -huh. but. Uh, by the time I was around, it was old enough. But he played it. He had a really pretty voice. He has. has. I, I say he's like he's gone. He's still here. Um, he's still here? Yeah. In his 80s? 80s. That's great. Um, Cole didn't get him. No. <laughs> he he had a really beautiful singing voice uh -huh. and would play and strum. And, you know, just like magic. Now I even see my son reacting the same way. And he's obsessed with drums, but uh, it's a different story. Uh -huh. So then Hee Haw, we'd watch Hee Haw every weekend. And Pat Paul would tell me, you know, which guys were actually playing and which ones were just holding yeah. the guitar like a prop. And Roy could play. Roy could play. Roy Clark was a huge inspiration, too, as a kid. Yeah. Um, my uncle, yeah. he always played. Uh, he was played organ and harmonica and stuff. He had a bunch of friends when I was a kid that they'd all go. He had these two friends that were twin brothers, and they, neither one of them never married, and they lived together. So they turned the living room of their house into a stage. They had a PA set up and like a light show. And on the weekends, they lived down on the river in Jackson. The whole friend posse would come over, and these guys would just play every night. Right. So my uncle would take me there once I started showing a little proficiency on guitar. And before I really learned how to play guitar or music. 
I think as a result of that, I learned how to play in a band. Right. And listen. Uh-huh. Because I was so afraid I might fuck up that I was just trying to stay out of the way. Yeah. And listen to what all these older guys were doing. And it was really influential. So you'd get on, on stage when you were like, what? How? What are we talking? 11 or 12? Um, or? Eight. Nine, oh, really? Yeah, nine. <laughs> They'd throw you up on the stage and you'd play? Yeah, that was my first gig. It was at a family reunion, actually, man. And my cousin was up there singing with me and he wasn't taking it serious. I remember getting so pissed off. So it's like, you know, if you're not going to do it. How old were you? Oh, God, we were young at that point. Uh, and he was just fucking off. And he was like, just over like, doot, doot, you know, like yeah, yeah. eating the mic. And I was like, fuck off. This is my, you know. Yeah, what <laughs> song? Do you remember the song? Uh, Swinging. Uh-huh. By John Anderson. Oh yeah, yeah. And you're 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 already sort of like, come on, man, dude. You're not appreciating the Sonics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Don't ruin the song. Like, you're, this is my Dewey Cox moment. Man. Fuck off. <laughs> so, all right. So that's real young when you're starting to at least get the sense of what it's like to play with people. Yeah. And your dad, I think it's it seems kind of sweet to me that he was so uh, kind of um, supportive and uh, in awe of your you know uh your your focus on that on music well now i wasn't <laughs> i wasn't always focused on it or, no but was he but he well, he was always sort of into it or no yeah he when i showed interest he went he had a he got me my first guitar it was a little electric silver tone and uh a silver tone where'd he find that used it was actually his when he was a kid oh, okay uh, i think he got over a sears catalog with the built-in amp with the amp in, in the, the, case? In the case little red sparkle deal oh with really the too. yeah i still got it it's a in my in my mom's house in storage um so that was the first one, and then man, it just the rabbit hole. I, I I got real heavy into Zeppelin on the Silvertone, on the Silvertone, nice and Cream and Stevie Ray Vaughan. So and you then, crank that little amp in the case way up. Well, actually, the case was long gone, but it's the guitar you're talking about. Oh, right. Yeah, I never. And the case you never used. The, I never the had amp the, case. In the case. I never saw the case. But it was one of those ones that came with the amp in the case. Yeah, you know that the, red sparkle. Yeah, with like yeah. The ugly ass white pit guard. Right, right. Um, so you put it. You got an amp too, then. Yeah, I had a little crate practice amp for a crate, while, and then yeah. by high school, I'd I'd save some money and I had a Fender amp and I started buying Telecasters and straight and had a Strat for a while. That was my um, first too, Telecaster. I uh, never could afford a Les Paul. I was too young, but I, I got really heavy into that Clapton Bino record that he did with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. Oh yeah, just obsessed, man. Like fifteen, sixteen years old, and I went way down this deep dark blues hole for about three years. Did you ever do the Peter Green blues? Oh yeah, absolutely. He's the best dude, dude. That guy. I talk about Peter Green constantly. He made BB King cry with his guitar playing, and that like that says a lot to me. But I think the pressure just got him, and I think the drugs. I think he might have been a little bipolar to begin with, and mm -hmm. I think it just sent him over the edge, and he just never. I think he it was a confidence problem too. Well, it's a pretty common theme, you know. No, no doubt. Look, but this this the, the true like Marvin, same thing. You know, oh yeah, the guy was scared to death to walk out on stage. Uh, yeah, the, the greatest singer ever, and he was afraid to perform in front of people. And, it's it's horrible the possibility yeah. for rejection that you've already created in your mind. Yeah, like oh, they're they're gonna hate me. It's not gonna. Do you have that? Oh yeah, really? Oh man, that's why people think I'm like pissed off all the time on stage. It's not. I'm just scared shitless, and I'm trying to fight through it. <laughs> Pretend like you got it together. Yeah, the, the entertaining aspect is something I've really personally kind of had to come to grips with because you know back then like marvin could put out let's get it on and sell yeah. five million copies and he didn't tour because he didn't have to tour right he sold records but now you, you have to tour the only way i'm going to support my family is to tour and the touring is the i love playing yeah don't get me wrong i, I mean that, that 90 minutes or two hours every night that's free we get paid to travel right um but it, every night i have to f sort of get 
lock myself in. locked in and go out there and like, okay, you know, there's thousands of people that really don't want to be disappointed because they have a lot of expectations. Right. No and, crying. Yeah. Dance monkey. <laughs> you know, so it's like, um, but what it, what's going through your mind in that? Like, it, what what is the exact fear? Is it is it that they're not going to respond or that you're going to fuck up or? All of it. Oh, really? You're just going to get out there and freeze and not know how to play, get tangled up? Well, I don't know, man. I don't know. If I knew, it probably wouldn't be an issue, you know? Let's figure it out. It's got to be something tangible. It's like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, coming to the stage right now, what's going through your mind? <laughs> wow. You um, waited to see him. He's here. Like, oh, fuck. I'm going to. Well, one, it's just so surreal that yeah. it's even happening. Right. Right. Just like, you know, and you can see you write a song or put a record out and yeah. people that, you know, or even if it's in character, they have these ideas or, or preconceived notions and expectations. Of who you are. And you have to live up to that. You, what, but and you're, if they just knew that I was just like this dork. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, yeah. I'm like a well read Kenny Powers, really, right. at the end of the day. It's not even. <laughs> you're afraid they're going to, like, you're going to be found out. Well, I mean, I'm not necessarily found out, but just, I'm like, oh. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> you know? right. He's not country. He's yeah. not hard. The fuck is he talking about? Right. Yeah. There is something that you you do it. You think that songs are written specifically about the songwriter's wife. You yeah. know, like you're living that. Like when Nick Lowe sat right right where you're sitting and played the Beast in Me, you know, which he wrote for Johnny Cash. But I'd always assumed like Nick's been through it. He's like, no, dude, it's it's a song. You know, we it's a song. You write through characters. You write through you know different voices. You 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 know, it's not my life necessarily some of it's your life of course then, you know it's also a lot of it is other people that you've knew or encountered whose lives were maybe more interesting than yours and you try to incorporate right observation i guess ultimately, right you know like isbel's like that too when oh, i talk to him dude. about yeah uh, you that, guys don't are even like, get me started oh yeah yeah he guys you know, he's, a, he's a hero for me oh but, yeah and he's probably in a lot of ways uh he's just a good human being oh he's a sweet guy he doesn't believe me uh, oh, actually, I don't know if he does or not. He never said, but I could tell he was skeptical. But I've never actually heard Southeastern in its entirety, and I haven't heard the new one at all. Mm -hmm. Just because uh, I remember Dave and I had finished High Top, and he and Jason had made the record, and Dave was like, "Man, you want to hear some?" I was like, "Absolutely," because I was a Truckers fan. I think we got about four songs in. And I was yeah, just like man, you got to turn it off. I can't listen to this. It's too heavy. It's too good. Too and good. It's too <laughs> stylistically realized. Yeah, you know, I, I'm like, if I get into something like this now, at a point in my life, everything I write for six months is going to sound like that. So, well, that's better than saying like I'm fucking quitting. But I know what you mean. I, I have that same yeah, issue. Yeah, at some point, I think you have to if you want to make, um, you know, a statement, you kind of have to shut off everything. Yeah, and you got to stop trying to stop comparing yourself to other people or letting other people do it for you I guess. right well i mean because uh like when even when I, I asked if you'd listen to that when was the last time you listened to that george jones record that that one from i guess it was the late 70s mm -hmm. you're like I, I i had to stop i you think know? about around the time my first country record came out i i pretty much had stopped listening to country all the old country because i feel like i'd absorbed right and traditional bluegrass like world war ii all the way up to the mid 70s like i had a big year-long OCD obsession with all the old before high top mountain before the high top in the country I just you know from like 27 up until 32 that was all I listened to because and you were enjoying it because enjoying you were it, like studying studying it without realizing it's always for me it's always been more about I'll just obsess about things and and draw everything I can from it and then at a certain point I just get bored yeah 
and put it down and, and find something else to obsess about. And you got a little flack, right? For uh, for the sound of the like, like I don't know, maybe I'm making it up. Did, did that people thought you were too reminiscent of Waylon, maybe, or too reminiscent of Man, the time? You know, I, Waylon. I've talked about this so fucking much. It's it's. Well, not, we don't have to talk about. No, it. I'd I, love I mean, to, I, actually, I didn't even hear it. I like I was into it. I'm like, it all sounds that's, good to me. That's the thing. Like, um, like who the fuck is who the like what like? Here's what I don't get. You make this amazing country record that the sound of which has not been heard in decades. And what kind of nerdy motherfucker is gonna be like? I don't know. It's a little too much. Like Waylon. I'm like you, one guy who's not even a country guy. <laughs> it's not really one guy. But no, hey, look. <laughs> Everybody's heard Waylon Jennings, you know, and but, and I'm 100% not bullshitting. He's probably the guy that I listen to the least and right. discovered the latest. But you know what, man? As a country singer, there are much fucking worse things to be told than you sound kind of like Waylon Jennings. So sure. It's always a compliment. But, right. But yeah, as an artist, especially on that first record, and, and a lot of that, I think, was Dave really wanted to make a Waylon Jennings record. Oh, he did? And Because uh, I kind of reminded him of Waylon. So <laughs> right. he's, just, he's an excitable guy. And then, How old's Dave? He's a couple years older than me. So he's a young guy. Young guy. He's like, I, he's, a, he's a fan like actually, you. Actually, I think he just turned 40. Okay. Yeah, he's a fan. And yeah. him and Shooter were great buddies and had worked together. And uh, Yeah. Because of Shooter is the only reason that first record got made. He's the one that told Dave about me. Uh, we were all down at third and Lindsley one night uh my manager and i'd gone to a billy joe shaver concert and shooter and dave and jamie johnson were there sitting upstairs at a table and mark my manager used to manage manage shooters so he yep. went up to say hi i was so shy you know and there's like and, and jamie's a hero and he's sitting i just got really nervous but i have like resting bitch face most of the time yeah because i'm usually internalized and thinking heavy about something and uh you get all hangdog when people just think I'm an asshole. And Dave yeah. even said, like, I was scared to death of you, man. I yeah. thought you were a fucking asshole. Well. And, uh, but Shooter, we ended up leaving, and Shooter, I think, so he says, told Dave, that guy's the best country singer in Nashville. And Dave apparently looked up some videos that line on, that night online and emailed my manager. Yeah. So the next morning, and we went and had lunch and made a record, and we made another record. What were the um, videos online? What was existing before the first record? I don't record? know what he saw that made him want to work with Well, you me. know, you do look like kind of a badass sometimes. Like, because like, then you make associations, dude. Like, on the second album, on the Metamodern Sounds and Country Music, the fucking picture on the cover, you look like a Civil War veteran. Well, that, like, was, you know, that was me being a smartass. Okay, so that's sort of a joke? Like, yeah, you, you uh, look like General Custer, for Christ's sake. My buddy Jason Sealer. It's actually a painting. Wow. A photograph. He's oh. an amazing artist. Um, wow. I wanted to do something... Just make the tackiest album cover of all time. Really? And and kind of juxtapose it with like oh there was a very hip trend with like the tin type photo going on at the right. moment. So I wanted to do something like even, the Civil War photos. Yeah, like yeah. but an even more ancient version of something that they're already trying to capture nostalgia with. So uh-huh. Like a painting of a black and white photo on well, a on a space. So background. that was a joke to you? Here it's I'm like, all that's a, joke. a great I mean, listen, the title's Meta Modern Sounds and Country Music. Which right, was, but I thought that was like I mean, I get it's a joke, but it's but all, it, I'm paying homage to Ray, but it was also like maybe we should I needed to take myself a little less seriously at the time, I think, more than anything. After High Top? After High Top. Because it was such a heavy record. Earnest. Earnest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, I, and then I wasn't, you know, I've said it before, but I, I didn't want to write a bunch of drinking songs. I mean, that shit's like just. Let Ben Hoffman do that. <laughs> God, let's hope so. <laughs> Did you like that record? I, I, I introduced Ben to Dave because I was like, this kind of has to happen. <laughs> I, but I told him, I was like, if you're going to do this, you can't 
turn puss cake halfway through, man. You yeah. got you can't tiptoe up there. It's got to be full fucking Kaufman. Yeah. Or I don't want to ever see you again. You right. Know what I mean? Right. So, but yeah, he went. Him and Dave went and uh, used uh, Chris Powell and Leroy and Freedom Eagle Bear and some other like great players. It charted. Wheeler it's, Walker charted. Dude, he's like he's on the Billboard Country chart. It's which I think is fucking brilliant. I loved his argument. It's like who's going who's going to tell me I'm not real country? Well, he it needs to be made fun of. Right. And I don't mean like it as in the mainstream or all of it. I mean it all needs to be made fun of. People get so hung up on this ain't real country or this is real country and this and it's like fuck who cares, man. Yeah. If it's making you happy or if it's making somebody you think's a dipshit happy, at the end of the day it's putting a lot of food on a lot of tables. It's making a lot of jobs. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and nobody's forcing people to go buy this. So like, yeah. there's obviously this huge demographic that of that really love all the stuff that people make fun of. But it doesn't. I don't think I, I, a lot of journalists last year wanted me to like get sucked into that conversation and just talk shit and bash it all day long about a mainstream country, mainstream country, and it, and it, I don't have anything to offer there because I just don't. It, I don't even think about it. You yeah, know what I mean, I don't. Uh, well, there was a time where guys like. Um, there was a fight to be had, I guess. I guess so. I don't, I don't know who started it, but, you know, back when Alt Country, you know, Steve Earle, maybe Lucinda a little bit, uh, they weren't fighting, but some people were drawing lines, you know, like when Guitar Town and stuff came out, that there was this movement of younger country artists. So are you were, going like Wilco and Uncle Tupelo? Or are you I'm going not, Steve Earle? Steve How Earl. far are we going back? Yeah, okay. Steve Earle. Yeah. Well, Uncle Tupelo, I mean, you know, it, well, some sort of standard was set by uh, by the Flying Burrito Brothers and, and Emmy yeah. Lou and, and, and those people. Writers of the Purple Sage. Right, right. Well, yeah, but then there was that country rock when I was a kid. I mean, shit, I saw writers, new writers of the Purple Sage. I don't even know why I saw them. But I remember they had a giant stagecoach up on <laughs> behind them when they were playing. At the end of the day, it all led to the Eagles. It, yeah. What do you think of that? I think that it, it it's inevitable. It happens. I, I, you know, it's like you want to hate them, but Jesus Christ, I know all those fucking songs. Well, there's a reason. They're good songs. They're good songs. <laughs> you, do, you know what I mean? Ear, Take it to the limit. Earworms. As they... They're beautiful, but like I still can't. It's it's sort of like the Beatles. I love the Beatles, but I, you know, am I going to throw on Lady Madonna again anytime soon? I don't think so. I mean, when I hear it, I, I'm like, okay. Now I, I have a two-year-old son, so I've gotten back into the Beatles. Got to. Got, got to. You got to program um, him. He's all about, man, it's crazy. Just, that's why the strings made the record, honestly, because it was, but the whole record was based on... Revolver? No. <laughs> well, wouldn't that be something? Yeah. Um, well, the first year and a half of his life, I was on the road pretty much the entirety because the record came out a month before he was born. Um, Which one? Metamodern. So that my career sort of took off around the same time that my family formed. Um, but my wife, you know, she very supportive and understands you know she's like you know, we spent five years to get right here and you have to do this yeah because you know? if, if you're going to do this this is this is it here's your so window like, okay so we're going to bump yeah. it down and get through this and I, I was on the road a lot probably slept in my bed maybe 50 times in that year and a half and uh-huh so i was watching him grow up in pictures really and then so when i was home with him it was you know every moment seemed hyper aware yeah like i just wanted to be so there right and, and a lot of that was me observing his reactions to a lot of the music that I listened to, which kind of influenced the album in a way. And I'd come, I'd come home with the roughs and the masters. This I, album. This album. I produced this one because it was so personal. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to be... Uh, I, more than anything, I think the idea of it came from the fact that, all right, well, after Metamodern, there's all these 
unnecessary and unfounded expectations and they put all these titles and things on you and I knew it was never going to pan out like I, as an outsider in self-release I knew there was no hope of me changing anything and what change in what in terms of what well people were fed up and frustrated they wanted to see recognition from the mainstream for for what they called authentic music but right it's that that world is they're not going to let a self-release independent record on stage at, at award shows and I mean I wasn't even in the country category at the Grammys for which one Meta Modern Sounds right um, you self-released that yeah I self-released it that's like and that's insane because that's politics well yeah but it's all necessary I mean uh, and, and, and so like yeah when, when Meta Modern came out there's all this press and people just oh you know I got this savior of country music title which to me was always Ugh. like a curse because I knew they were going to be let down Right. There's you know, no way to live up to no that. There's no way to live up to that. They're just waterboarding themselves with Kool-Aid. Right. Thinking that, that that the industry propagates things that it stands to profit on. Profit and benefit from. And I knew the change always had to come from the inside. Like a guy like me or a guy like Jason, we can kick down doors all day long, but you know, we're not gonna walk through them. Right. I'm not I mean, his he's too nice we gotta say this, so I'll say it for him. He had a number one country record last year. And I and I know they submitted for recognition from the ACMs and got rejected, yeah. and Dave wrote him a letter. So I mean, to, to me, I'm yeah, I'm a little skeptical still. That's fucking. Crazy. I don't know how much things have really moved forward, but 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 the weird thing is, it's like it, it's but, it's what we were talking about earlier. This weird paradigm is that what are they protecting? They're protecting like you know these known quantities who make them millions of dollars, and they're not welcoming in you know creative new artists. Oh, they are. No, 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 they are. They, I mean, uh, Chris Stapleton's a friend of mine. That guy's a phenomenal. Yeah. Talent. Oh, I mean, good. Phenomenal talent. But so why'd they ice Jason? I, I don't know, honestly. I mean, Chris has written songs for a lot of people in that world, but I don't... The dude's just such an incredible artist. That, yeah. But because he's on the inside, I think he's in a better position to really orchestrate change more so than, than anybody like Jason or myself or a lot of others could. And I think that's a great thing because mm-hmm. it has to move forward. And I, and I don't know if metamodern had anything to do with that i mean i know chris has said he heard the record and wanted to work with dave right to me that's the biggest compliment anybody could pay me yeah if i in any way influenced that guy to go against the grain and make a record that he wanted to make in the yeah. world and well that's pretty at, selfless look at the results man yeah so uh and i think also as a result of that both fortunately and maybe unfortunately for the next two or three years you're going to see music row pumping out versions one through 37 of their authentic country singers right because they know right now they kind of look like assholes right you know right um and it, so they're going to go back to and, I, and i'm an asshole for so for right. me to say somebody looks like an asshole that's like right so now they're just going to re- reconfigure the face of country music a little bit it need, it's all cyclical every 25 30 years it rolls over and it's time to roll over well let's get back to you know you having this uh you know these this profound time with your son and, and moving into this new record what was you know how did you come up with how does it work for you as a songwriter that you know you kind of move through this metaphor for a good chunk of the record you know the ocean the sailor business there's two or three uh, songs at least on there well, where'd the concept come from yeah i mean like you you said you had this experience with your kid yeah, just being away from him, and even though, I mean, I, I have the greatest job on the planet, man. Yeah. You know, there's no question about it, even though it brings me a lot of emotional turmoil and and, if, and insecurities I have to fight to go out and do it. It's still the greatest job on the planet. Right. So it's like I've, my whole life, whether I knew it or not, even when I wasn't ambitiously moving towards it, it was all I ever cared about. Music. Music. And and, I, and and people might think I'm pretentious or whatever, but I take it very seriously. You know, if I go to a you know, yeah. it's something, it's the only thing I've ever taken seriously. So. 
And I feel like you have this responsibility. These records are going to be around forever. Mm-hmm. So anything I leave behind has to be solid. Solid. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I wanted also realizing sort of my place in it all and, and the road I would have ahead of me. I came to peace with that and, and, and realized that no matter what happens going forward, you know, it's a very fickle business and it could all be over tomorrow for me. So I wanted to do something as a thank you to my wife and my, and my family, just as like, you know, this, their support and believing in me got me to right here. So I'm going to be very self-absorbed and selfish for a moment and produce this bombastic orchestral journey for my kid that someday if I grow up and I'm dead and gone, he can listen back and know exactly who his dad was and have all those things that like that meant so much to me in this sonic capsule so so the difference is like in the first record you were saying i'm, I'm going to write an earnest country record yeah in the second record you were going to turn country in on itself a little bit well i wanted to incorporate it. elements of psychedelia and rock and roll right. that i always listen to and then really make a social consciousness album about right. the human experience and like coming to terms with the little dark corners we all don't want to go around in our heads you know which is not common for country really not anymore it used to be what it was all about it used to be about the celebration of the struggle of life like the blues and, and the blues you yeah know, now it's like uh, it is what it is let's dance but people like it so what do you what can you say who are you going to be mad at people you want know? happy music people want to be happy bro <laughs> Yeah, there were some, like, even, like, well, yeah, I mean, if you look at even Hank Williams and, you know, and his progeny, like, the, the, the legacy of, of being as dark and out there as he was and writing those songs, like, it, it all feeds all that stuff. And when even when you hear the personal mythology of, of George Jones, you're like, holy shit. Genius. But so, okay, so that was the exploration record, but this but they, record... But they were taking heavy, overwhelmingly depressing, sad themes and putting them to uplifting sonic background that was that's the, that's the that's the that's what makes it good you're well, taking yeah, happy it, music and expressing these uh, these thoughtful emotive ideas well, as opposed to now where any kind of modern music yeah. seems to be rapid and over top of these bombastic like a cheesy version of 80s hair metal yeah and really shallow empty lyrical content and there was a really interesting piece in, in the, the washington post last week about how a lot of modern country singers are coming out and expressing uh not apologies but just like yeah we know there's not much in what we're doing and to me that tells me that somewhere right now around eight thousand dollar oak tables meetings are taking place and they're saying we look like assholes right and we need to come up with a better alternative because people are fed up well they let the money kill it the artists are fed up is what you're the artists are also fed up right a lot of people from that world reached out to me man uh keith urban Wrote me one of the nicest notes of encouragement I'll probably ever get in my entire life. Zach Brown extended, put us, took us out and put us in front of bigger audiences than we ever would have thought to play for last mm-hmm. year. So, I mean, yeah, the artists are fed up. And, and, and the, the people that work in the industry are fed up. That's beautiful because that's one of those stories where, you know, it's like one of those sort of almost like a star is born. Where, you know, you get these dudes that have made fortunes and, and have really figured out how to make fortunes doing what they do by making certain compromises to maybe what they originally set out to do. And then a guy comes along that just rings true and, and they're gracious enough. It, that, that's got to be worth everything. And, uh, like, and again, returning back to this time capsule for your kid. So th- to me, it sounds like this was a, a grown-up record where, where like, you know, you... <laughs> 
You big, are in, big boy pants? Yeah, right? Because, like, you know, in Metamodern, you know, you had an agenda to, to explore certain things that you grew up with and psychedelic things. And the first record, you wanted to, to sort of, like, you know, you know, have your ground, like, you know, to, to be reckoned with. Or finding it, maybe. Right. And then this record, it seems like, well, I'm going to draw from what I love and use, like, there's something that you just said about the sonic landscape, you know, having the power to elevate pain enough to where that pain is is manageable within the person listening. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, no, absolutely. You know, and that that like I've never really heard it put that way, and, and I think that's right on because a lot of times with the blues, you know, that's pretty standard shit. But you know, in terms of it's one four five, and you, you know, and then the chorus is usually good, and, and somebody, you know, there's a you know, I'm fucked, but I'm okay. Right. But like to do something like Golden Ring, which is a cyclical, you know, sort of heartbreaking story. And to have it be like something you can listen to over and over again just means that that pain you're experiencing with that sad story, it's a uh, it's manageable and, and it's human. Everybody can relate to. We all have the same basic emotions. And so, is that what you found yourself entering this record? You know, what was the thing you said? Well, I don't give a fuck. I'm you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna honor which voice. Do you know what I'm saying? Like or honor all of them. Maybe. Like, oh, okay. Well, really, it was like okay. Well, I'm I'm on a major label now. This is my first album. I've got this these metaphor i like to use as a toolbox yeah you know you have all these uh means available now that i didn't have like metamodern we made that literally me and three other guys my road band that i'd spent a year on the road a lot of the songs were tested arranged carved out of wood yeah and we came in and hit record with four microphones and we didn't touch anything after day one uh and and it was a very short conversation dave knew exactly what i wanted yeah and, and it went very fast and very i didn't think i was ready to make a record um whereas opposed with this album all of those ex learning experiences stack up into more confidence right? in terms of what you, and if you spend a year or a year and a half on the road, inevitably you become a better musician. Inevitably you hear things you didn't hear a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. um, and after some reflection and I, and I, I knew that I'd learned a lot about the process. Yeah. And so I guess I had some confidence. So it, it, I told Dave, I'm going to do this one by myself just because it's so personal. what do you say? He understood. Yeah, I mean, and then the, the label, I'm, they were kind of like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but so I just told everybody I'm going to go make some demos and see where my head's at. But I knew I had the record. We right. came out about four or five days later, and everybody's concerns were alleviated. Hopefully, but it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of uh, again, it was a learning experience because I already heard it in my head, and all the guys in the room had to deal with that. Right. That fact that you had it fully realized. So patience was a. Uh, something that i came to understand is very important in a process where you know well, well let's try that but well, we can't try it right now because to set up certain equipment especially in the analog world it takes time and then you got to place the mics right and uh the, the engineer david ferguson was a genius worked with cowboy jack and rick rubin and did all the johnny cash records um he i learned probably even more from him in that week it it's it's really interesting i don't know the records for me is is the reward that's what i love more than anything well it was sort of kind of cool that one of the more country-ish sounding songs is the nirvana cover right like you know like you had to you know like i understand doing a cover and i understand you know loving nirvana but you know what was it about was which one in bloom is that what mm -hmm. it was what was it about that song that you were like well this this i can you know we can make this sing in a different way 
Well, I mean, if you're going to cover anything, you should probably try to make it in a different way. No, of course. But I mean, um, like, you knew. I, I can't something. take credit for it. It's my wife's idea. Oh, I mean, really? Yeah. I did this other <laughs> 80s new wave song on the last record. That was her idea because she. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so the record conceptually as a letter to your son. Right. Or, or as a new parent to their child, whatever, from far away. I wanted, I knew, I had this hole in the narrative. The record was sort of arranged before a lot of the songs were finished even being written because I knew it had to form a right a narrative. And yeah. I came to that point where I was like, okay, well, he's going to hit this this stage in his life where he's like this post-pubescent, adolescent, angsty, awkward little kid that we yeah. all go through. And I'm not in that headspace anymore, so I didn't know how to... And a lot of, to be honest, a lot of my life during that time, I just kind of blocked out. And, went and just learn to play guitar and smoke pot and try to be numb through it all. Uh-huh. Um, so my wife said, well, you know, what were you listening to at that point in your life? Like, Nirvana. You know, yeah. that shit hit in like eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade. And uh, my parents had, had divorced, so I was like the latchkey kid from a broken home, you know, and that record just sort of exploded. In How my... old were you when they divorced? Uh, 13. Uh, was that rough? Or were you just too out of it? Uh, at that point, everything that had led up to it I think I was already just kind of out of it. it was were they like fighting? Early. Yeah, it was like pretty tumultuous, but they loved each other, man. They, they were young, trying to do the best they could. Right. Uh, but yeah, that that broke, and then I was just sort of... Wayward. Wild. Yeah, yeah. Just for the lack of... The... But did, like, you know, speaking about the life and about these drifting years, or you know, before you sort of like kind of landed, you know, in whatever got you to the first record, I mean, how fucked up did it get? for you i mean were you just a guitar player or just in just a weed smoker like what kind of jobs were you doing what kind of trouble were you getting into uh high school was there a moment where you're like i gotta change course oh for sure (laughs) and and you know a few of those really i I worked for the railroad for a while out west why um well i'd moved to nashville the first time in 2000 in 2004 2005 and i was Uh there for a while trying to be a singer songwriter well i didn't know what i was trying to do I, I just went down there very naively and uninformed and thought well but you know everything that's going on in that city now yeah wasn't really happening yet right you know there wasn't uh, jack white wasn't there jack white east nashville wasn't <laughs> east nashville then it right. was uh just a different world and i didn't know anyone or where to start and I've never been a very ambitious person yeah. so uh rather than well i guess i'll go down to the open mic at the Music Row Best Western and slog it out. I figured, well, I'll just probably sit home and, and drink and listen to bluegrass instead. So I did that for about nine months. Yeah. And then realized, well, this isn't going anywhere, so I should probably get a job. Yeah. And a buddy of mine uh, with some connections got me on a gig at, the, at a railroad switching terminal out in Salt Lake City. And Wow. Yeah, that was... so that, It's abstract. Yeah, it happened. Yeah. I sold all my guitars except for Martin. I just went out there and threw myself into the job for a while, and then I took a management position... At the railroad. At the railroad. My, my Now my wife moved out. She was with me there. And then... Uh, was that dark time? No, it was a good job, man. It yeah. really is. Uh, you're, I mean, it's a lot of hours, but... And, uh, what was the job? I started out as a conductor. I was switching trains on the yard that would pull in. We'd break them apart. So you weren't on the train. You were... Well, I was on the train. We, we'd, we'd operate them. We'd engineer the locomotives within the within the you know the yard. Yeah. yeah. Driving, driving mile and a half long trains yeah 
Uh, it's a very outdoor physical job. But old school. Old schools as it gets, yeah. man. <laughs> it's like it's appropriate, you know, they, uh, to the point where I'm like, did you plan that? You, and to be, be honest real... with you, man, if I hadn't <laughs> taken that management job, I'd probably still be there. Yeah. I, I screwed up and got in an office and on the conference calls getting screamed at. And I wasn't yeah. out there on the yard anymore, and I just got really depressed. Were you writing music? Up until that point, no. But once it got to that point, yeah, the guitar came out of the closet for the first time. When you were getting yelled at by upper management? What am I doing with my life, man? This is not not me. (laughs) And uh, my wife has always been very encouraging about my music. She went and bought me a little 12-track recorder so I could start putting ideas down at home. Uh And then I started writing more. And then finally she just kind of told me, you know, you don't suck at this. And (laughs) and it's obviously what... (laughs) you enjoy right so maybe you ought to try to do that before you wake up you know and i'm Life stuck with gone. your miserable ass forever <laughs> yeah, <you know. laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so that's what happened we quit our jobs we sold everything and drove back to nashville a ford bronco to nashville and that was about six years ago and then you just sort of you, you figured out how to 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 what how did you begin to get recognized for what you were doing how did you make how did you get to the first record from salt lake city and quitting a railroad job um the first year i dicked off back and forth with a local band i used to play in and realized that we we that was kind of over before we started it again yeah and, and i didn't have much musically or personally to offer there anymore and i realized i was kind of using it as a hiding place and a crutch what kind of music was it it's like punked out bluegrass uh-huh. it was a lot of fun um, yeah until it wasn't right i just you know it wasn't gratifying uh-huh um so I made a break from those guys uh, and then just decided I'm going to write country songs because that's, that's ultimately, even in playing in that band, that's what I was doing, was, right. was writing country songs. Right. And so, yeah, Shooter hooked up with Dave. This is all like a year later. I My manager was Blind Chance. Uh, again, knowing what I knew from living there the first time, I was like, well, obviously you need help or at least somebody to point you in the right direction. Yeah. So I just... I blind copied in about 375 email addresses and wrote this very short uh tried to make it as humble as possible basically just saying i need somebody to go sit down with have a cup of coffee and just tell me like where to start Uh and the guy who's my manager now he doesn't believe me but out of all of those he was the only person that wrote me back really and uh he he said he heard something on the thing on my voice and he was like there's something here so for the first two years more as a friend than a manager he just kind of gave me advice on what not to do and would put up walls whenever things would present themselves that that what were some of those things you know just the token stories where guys like me get chewed up and spit out by that town right you know running interference and saying you don't want to do that you think you want to do that right and you think that what they're telling you is great but you know that's not worth what you're giving away so don't do that yeah and and so it's a lot of times kind of scary um and then he basically said like i'll help you i'll get you in the right direction if it turns in something i want the gig and we shook hands on it and oh yeah two years later it turned into a gig and there you go he's my little sicilian jewish pit bull you know <laughs> sicilian jew yeah and he's been there a long time he's been there a long time and he's worked in just about every facet of the industry over the, and, and seen what it does sure so he knows all the tricks and he knows you know i don't think uh for lack of you know there, there might be bigger more connected guys but there's nobody that's got my best interest in mind in that town right like he does that's good man it's yeah. good to have loyalty and a good relationship like that and it's good that you above you all else yeah and it's good that you didn't get all fucked up i mean there's still time but uh <laughs> <laughs> no i got all that out of my system i'm 
I'm good. Yeah, when you were hitting the bottle, was it bad? Well, no, no, it wasn't like handshaking. It was just kind of like yeah. self-medicating depression sure. and, and uh, not knowing anybody. That was easier to find than all the other things that, that might right. have been, you know, more But fun. your wife seems to have sort of been there the whole time. Did she say like, God dude, bless her, man. what are you doing? It Really, man, all of this is happening because of her. Yeah. That's the truth. Like, I wouldn't have done any of this. Uh-huh. Um, what did she do? She she used to work in marketing, and uh-huh. now she's she's taking care of the kid. I finally got to a point where she can stay home, yeah. which was very important to me for her to be able to raise our child, uh-huh. our children, hopefully. Yeah. But she's she's very independent, very supportive. So, uh, calls me on all my bullshit, or you know, tells me when you I take could, it when I could try. I have to. I got to take it from somebody. Right. You know? <laughs> um, but no, this is all literally. If not for her, I really don't think any of this thing would be would be going down. So, like, the, the the actual arc of the record is Welcome to Earth is Birth. Birth. Yeah, Breaker's Roar is sort of a warning. Um, just a, more of a, of a full disclosure. Yeah. This is what you're in for. Uh-huh. It ain't all flowers. Right. Keep it between the lines is, you know. That was a collection of metaphorical sayings my grandfather used to say that even to this day, half of them, I'm still not certain I know what they mean, but it's more like worldly advice that I tried to put in a song. <laughs> yeah. And also in the form of a, a quasi-dare commercial mm-hmm. so that my kid doesn't feel the need to go down some of the roads I did, even mm-hmm. though as, as idealistically and romantically Rimbaugh-esque I might have been in my yeah. exploration, like there wasn't much learned from that other right. than had a good time had a good time weird. and even then didn't have a good time oh yeah you know what i mean so like yeah yeah rimbo didn't end well no uh and then uh sea stories is sea stories is more of a collection both autobiographical and some fantasial and made up kind of like my life in the navy and some of the characters and weirdos that i met and how long were you in the navy about three years was it after is before the trains way before yeah i i, I got in trouble selling drugs in, in senior year of high school, like three months in. What were you selling? Just pot. Mm. Um, I had a job at McDonald's. Yeah. My mom, when I turned 16, my mom, I, I got a job at McDonald's, which was literally like two miles from our house. And she's like, if you, whatever you save up the first six months, I'll, I'll match you on buying a car. Uh-huh. So, and then like, you know, you're back there frying nuggets and people from school are coming in and just ridiculing the shit out of you. And it was absolutely humiliating. I was uh, like, this is fucking bullshit. Wearing I need, the hat. I need CDs and strings, man. Yeah. So my buddy, uh, my good, my good friend of mine had an older sister dating this dude who had a, had a line on the commercial A-grade krill, man. And I was like, all the kids in school are getting the, the dirty brown press. Yeah. I could kill this. Yeah. And it was like, um, and there was nobody there to say, maybe you shouldn't do that. So uh, that was a, that was a wake-up call. And then I realized. Where was your dad? Your dad was out of the house? Yeah, he was gone. Yeah. He, he moved out at that point. But you, so. did you talk to him still? or? Yeah, I went, I went stay with him. It wasn't like, it, honestly, looking back, it wasn't rebellion. It was business. Oppor- opportunism and business. You know, was like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, there was there was demand yeah right <laughs> and nobody else had the supply yeah uh, so but, but that was you know it was a really stupid foolish thing and then, so i was about three months into my senior year and just sort of had this epiphany like i'm going nowhere you know my grades were again it's your first epiphany so i was like well if i know if i join the military I'll, i know no matter what i'll get out of this town and nothing was scarier to me than than two years later still being in that town so uh, i enlisted and i thought the navy would take me farther away than anything else you didn't get busted though no and your no. dad the, the didn't... guy that i was getting it from i don't remember how he he came home late and his old lady called the cops on him so he freaked out in the middle of the night and me being the closest person to his house he calls me this 16 17 year old kid in the middle of the night and and 
my mother had picked the phone up before I did. So she yeah. heard this fucktard just like going on the whole gamut and the gig was up. And I uh, was my man, God bless her. She did. But it was one of those calls, right? Like, Dude, the cops are coming, and like, I don't know how much shit you have, but I, you know, I got You got to get me out of here, man. I was like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the, Who is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she, she scared her to death. She was the best mother anybody could hope for, and I put her through hell. And I'll always regret that, but she couldn't have done any better. So, you know, it's like Merle said. Yeah. Mama tried. Yeah. Um, and the Grateful Dead. And the Grateful Dead. Yeah. So you go into the Navy and you, you have a life. For how long? Long enough to know it wasn't for me. Were you at sea? Oh, yeah. I was on a little little frigate. We uh, would, I was stationed over in Japan. Yeah. The biggest part of that. All over Asia. And we would like escort the battle group. Or the, uh, the main thing was patrolling international waters and checking like cargo and freighter ships and containers and manifests. And we have these little VBSS teams at the board and we just fucking dick off and it was peacetime there wasn't anything going on yeah so the the hardest part of it was remembering you were in the navy a lot of the times right know what i mean like you hit these ports and i have buddies that went to college and they talk about frat parties i'm just like you guys have no idea <laughs> what navy parties are like yeah it was a lot of fun some of the best friends i'll ever have in my life still have them still uh, there's a few of the really tight guys that like come to shows stay in touch uh one one of my close friends lives out on the west coast. He's got a kid about the same age as me, and we'll we'll probably talk the rest of our lives. And then there's the guys that you were as good of friends as you'll ever have in the world. That you know, there's one dude, Joe, was one of those like you know Bob Acosta, like the attorney from the Hunter Thompson novels. Yeah, he yeah. said you know it wasn't meant for mass production. Right, well, this right. was that guy. Right. And to this day, nobody knows what happened to him. He could so, be he could be dead. He could be in prison. Either no, one. you don't know. Nobody yes, the knows. Guys know but him. man, he was like, you couldn't have asked for a more colorful human being. Was he the guide? Was he the guide? No, 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 no. He was He was uh, sort of the, the example. Oh, yeah? You know, like what not to do. Yeah, maybe but not get that him. far out. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's but, nice. So you, you survived that and you didn't get too fucked up and you had a good time? I had a real good time. And you I, came back with- I got uh, fucked up after. I got out. I was out in Everett, Washington- Really? Uh, yeah, I got out of station in Everett when I got out. That's Cobain country. Yeah. Uh, well, it was long after all that was sure. over. It was like 99. Yeah. Um, so I was, uh, yeah, I was just kind of stuck out there working at this IHOP oh. away from my family and everything I ever knew and understood. I was living with this 18-year-old French girl. And So you uh, just that's what you did when you got discharged? You just stayed there? I just stayed there and, and got fucked up and played guitar and went to shows and, and experienced this whole other side of America that I probably never would have seen before. Pretty up there. It's gorgeous. It's yeah. also immensely depressing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? A little um, dark. But I liked it. It's a cool town, man. Um, had too much fun. Got to a point where I realized I was having too much fun. Uh, missed, missed, Again. Missed my grandfather's funeral Ooh. because of that. Your father's father? My father's father because I, I wasn't in a state to come home and, and see anybody what were you so, doing just booze uh yeah a lot of a lot of yeah. i don't yeah i read all the wrong books and i don't ever want to, really want to talk about that because a lot of kids they hear shit like this and they get all you know impressionable and stupid well you didn't lose your life and you didn't stay in it yeah yeah just kind of this and that sure had a good time until it didn't uh now i have to carry the shame of not being able to come home mm -hmm. and see that man go um did, was so he was he dying? No, he he had Alzheimer's and no. he fell down and broke his hip and there was I guess bacterial infections. I'm not sure exactly. 
But it, other than that, physically he was fine. He'd probably still be here if that hadn't happened. And was that the sort of the the thing that shook you that was straight? The, that was a wake up call. Yeah. And your and dad I, probably was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Yeah, yeah. We and but I couldn't I couldn't talk to him about it. You know. Sure. So it was. It was He'd a, have to arrest a, you. A distance there for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I came home and and got back in my element and around friends that I hadn't seen in a while and. and Eventually, I was okay. You know, getting out of the military is always something that a lot of people don't talk about because even peace or wartime, there's some pretty serious behavioral modification. Right. And so I had to kind of come to grips with that on my own. I wasn't this laid-back kid that that my friends all knew in high school. It was just like wound tighter than a banjo string and nothing was efficient enough anymore. Yeah. So I had to throttle back. Right. You had to learn how to be uh, in real life again. Right. And were you a fighter? (laughs) <laughs> what do you mean did you kick any ass did you get in fights in the navy yeah sure <laughs> yeah yeah Over I, I, i'm not a i don't i've seen some pretty authentic and severe violence so it's something that i try to avoid at all at all costs where do you see point. that just you know fights and things yeah. like out out on town and then um but no, I'm not a I'm not a, a violent guy if that's what you mean. But you you'll throw it down if you have to. I'm I'm mercurial. Uh-huh. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I'm just I'm trying I'm trying to lift up your country cred. That's all. Oh, I understand. No. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean I, I you know, honestly fighting something that I've come to really hate as I've gotten older. And uh, I I'm one of those guys, I'm not afraid to stop a show if I see it happening just because one, it, well, the most annoying thing is it never happens. It's mm-hmm. always just a couple of cockheads like puffing up like roosters, but right. you know nothing ever happens. They, all they do is consume and re- redirect all of the energy in the room to them. And yeah. nobody's in the show. My band's not in the show anymore, and that pisses me off to in a way I could never fully articulate. So that's one reason. Two is usually it's always people around the jackasses that end up getting hurt. Yeah, and I would rather stop than to see that happen at a show that people that we're responsible for people being there in the first place, you know? Yeah. So, but you got to be careful because if I do that now, it's like, it's on YouTube in five minutes and uh-huh. you're a tough guy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, uh, I, I think it's interesting though, because like, you know, there's a, you know, this talk about authenticity and about country and about, you know, what your interests are and, and how you've lived your life and what you've done with your mind and, and, and the things you've accomplished. But, but I, I think what we're learning is that, um, you know, d- despite, uh, you, you know, wh- whatever uh, you're telling me about um, intellectually who you are, there, there's definitely a country badass in there. Uh, you know, get in, <laughs> get in where you fit in, man. Are you, is, that, is that insulting? Or you no, just... not at all. I, I mean, I don't consider myself a badass, but, you know, it, it's... But if necessary. I think there's certain things I'm kind of badass at. Yeah. You know, and I've learned to focus on just doing those things. So in bloom, as we discussed, was, oh, yeah, yeah. was, uh, was, you know, showing him what you liked and, yeah. and interpreting it for him. Yeah, And plus and paying homage to Kurt. And I got a lot of slack from that when that really, sh- yeah. You know, the Nirvana fans. Oh, fuck it. Yeah. Fuck them. Um, but the thing is like, I, as a huge Nirvana fan, one of my favorite things about Kurt that I always liked when I was a kid, I saw in some interviews, he talked about how much he loved country music and Merle Haggard. And yeah, he covered a Stanley Brothers song on the unplugged, you know, like and that was the stuff that I knew as a kid. I was like, this guy's awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to Kindred do something spirit. from my, you know, what I do best 
mm-hmm. as to, to kind of pay homage and make it. I tried to make it as beautiful as I could. Um, it might be weird, but no, it's great. Um, Even and, fucking Paul Anka covered Nirvana. Yeah, I think he would have liked it just because it pissed off Nirvana fans. Sure. Yeah, any if you pissed off anybody, I think he would have liked it. And they can all suck my duck. So yeah, embrace for impact. That's the single. Are you thinking? I, well, if that exists, if that exists, I, they the label let me pick the first single. So I said, let's go with the six minute deep cut. Mm-hmm. That because I I want people to hear this album from start to finish. So the whole idea of singles to me seems. Well, I love that. It's like it's a reasonably length record. It's like a real record. There's nine yeah, songs. Forty on minutes. It. It's twenty what, aside, bro. Yeah, it's a real record. None of this sort of loading up. We were talking about antiquated business models before you turn the tape on. Mm-hmm. And I think now any any there's a lot of music fans, yourself included, or anybody hopefully that's that's that knows my first two records, they know that they're getting an album. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, even Adele said she doesn't want her album snacked on, you know, like right. people are going to just give them the record, man, yeah. and let them let them dissect it and exp- and tell me what they what it means as opposed to Let's roll out three tunes, sit down with 8,000 journalists, answer the same seven questions. Just give them the record. Right. That's all they want. Right. And then let, and them, let, let, let them live with it, and then three months later show up and play the thing in front of them, and everybody has a great time. Right. The whole, and let them take it in as a record. Right. As opposed, I mean, you know, you spend all this money setting things up that are just going to inevitably happen or not. Right. Um, but still the songs the, My first on record own. took off because of organic Right. Word of mouth that's the only. Was, but that's the only thing that you, that's all that can happen. That's it. Nothing and, and else. Everything else is out of your control. And also, every, nothing else really works. No. You know, you, you people got to be like, this shit is the shit, and then they get, they turn it on to the other guy. And, and ho- yeah, and, it get, it, and people connect with it, and they hopefully it eases their pain or whatever yeah. they're dealing with. That's right. Trophies or not trophies, my life is dope. It's great. So, brace for impact was sort of like you know, don't be too scared and you know, live life a little. Yeah. Right. Facing mortality or someday, you, yeah, you're gonna die. Are you asking me to explain my art? No. Okay. I'm just I'm just going through. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to sort of encapsulate the I'm, dialogue I'm with your kid. No, no, yeah. That, that is great. Let's do it here, and then I don't have to do any interviews. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it all here yeah. because, like, I like the idea that it is a conversation yeah. that you want the kid to have, and and all around you is just uh, knowing no matter what love and 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 finding strength within yourself and, and you know you know we aren't we're mortal but like you can carry memories of positive encouraging sure. influential people the rest of your life and, and that your parents love you yeah and that there's love all around you no matter how sometimes in your life you might feel like there isn't any like it's literally always there and oh, i just wanted him to know that i um, need to know that thank you i'm gonna um, i have to go listen to that song again oh sarah is for sarah i wanted to yeah something for his mother yeah and call to arms just a concerned parent facing the world we live in. Mm-hmm. What is your concerns? How it's, old is he? Two. It's two. He's two. Um, what are you afraid of? Fuck, man. Have you watch the news? Sure. I try not to. Um. I try to keep it, yeah. you know, around the house. I don't know. I, just things you can't control. So almost like, everything. Almost everything. Well, I'm proud of you, buddy. <laughs> Thanks, bro. <laughs> Congratulations! You do it's, great work, and you're a solid dude. And, and I get to make art for a living, man. It's and like, and he also sang the fuck out of this record. I mean, like I think you really took some chances as a singer, and it's like, and you can hear it. Thank you. Did you feel that? Yeah, I wanted to. I mean, hopefully, I'm getting better. Come on, you're I'm, doing great. You're doing great, but don't don't let the fear go away. No, I like I like the angst. <laughs> 
Yeah, me too. My, my buddy Bobby says I have a rocky heart, whatever that means. But, yeah, yeah, well, that's all right. As long as you, you, know, you just you you, you know you, you stay nice to your wife and you do a good job with your kid, fine. Have a rocky heart. Keeps the assholes away. Seems to be working so far. <laughs> Thanks for talking to me, man. Oh, honor. That was uh, me and Sturgill Simpson. I enjoyed that conversation immensely, and I love the record. Go to WTFPod.com for all that stuff. Look at the new site. Look at my tour dates. Get some merch. Read old updates. Look at pictures. All kinds of shit to do over there. Right? Right. What else? A lot of good episodes of WTF coming up. I'm going to go turn my amp on. Hold on.